Many of us uh, have had them, and when and if we do, they can change the way we see things, affect our thinking, and influence the actions we take. Yes, a lot of us have had them at various points in life. And what I'm talking about are aha moments, when all of a sudden something within us changes and everything is different. Aha or eureka moments, as they are sometimes called, can be somewhat trivial and at other times quite life-altering. They can even be embarrassing and humiliating. When I was a very young boy, and never forget, I was very young, I'll never forget going into a public restroom, and when I was ready to leave, I went to the door from which I had entered. Strangely enough, though, the door did not have a handle on it. So I tried pushing on the door, and it did not open. And immediately I began to panic because I felt trapped. And fortunately, pretty soon, another fellow came into the bathroom, and after just a very short time, when he was ready to leave, he went to the opposite side of the bathroom from the entry door and simply pushed and walked out an exit door I had not seen. Oh, I said to myself, that's how you get out. <laughs> that's a very silly example, but from that moment forward, despite feeling foolish, I knew never to assume that an entry door is always an exit door. And that was an important aha for a very young boy. Sometimes, however, aha moments have led people to great success. You may know the story of Lululemon, for example. Lululemon came about because a fellow noticed that women did not have special pants for yoga. The company IKEA was created because a guy could not fit a table he had purchased into his car. So in the parking lot, he took the legs off the table, put the table into the car, along with a brand new idea for a company. Plato came about after teachers realized that the dough a company made, which was actually marketed as wallpaper cleaner, could be used to model and form shapes. And you may know the story of Velcro invented after someone saw cockle burrs stuck to his dog's fur, and when he looked at the burrs under a microscope, an idea was born. Perhaps the greatest eureka of all. Just think of the aha moment folks had on that first Easter morning when Jesus showed up after having been crucified. Adam's waving at me because I guess my mic wasn't on. That's probably better. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> anyway, just think of the that aha moment that Jesus must, uh, or that the disciples must have had after Jesus showed up after having been crucified. So many of Jesus's words and teachings before his crucifixion must have come flooding into the minds of those who had encountered the risen Jesus. For example, there was a day that Jesus said, all right, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then there was the day that Jesus was transfigured on a mountain, and Moses and Elijah appeared, and Jesus told Peter, James, and John, who were with him, tell no one about this until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And when people saw the risen Jesus for the first time, immediately people would have understood what Jesus had meant by these examples. And they would suddenly see Jesus in a brand new light, a way that changed the course of their lives and, in fact, the history of the planet. Well, our reading today is from the 10th chapter of Mark. It's a well-known story. It's about a wealthy guy, a very wealthy guy. And so for a moment, let's take a look at it. The story revolves around a man who wants to know how to get or have eternal life. He wants to know what he must do 
to accomplish his desire. The story begins with the words, as Jesus started out on his way. Now, in Mark's gospel, as an aside, Jesus is often going somewhere at a very fast pace. Frequently, Jesus seems to be rushing around from place to place in Mark's gospel, which is why so often the word immediately is used in that gospel. Well, anyway, in the story, a rich man runs up to Jesus and says, Good teacher! Well, many people back then recognized Jesus as a rabbi or a teacher, and uh, teachers were often referred to as good. But despite this, Jesus uses the man's opening as an opportunity to do some powerful teaching, not only for the man, but for his followers who were there. Jesus says, you call me good, only God is good. And here Jesus may very well have been alluding to the fact that he was indeed the Messiah. Jesus then, in response to the man's question about what he must do to achieve eternal life, launches into describing the Ten Commandments, especially those that have to do with our relationship with each other. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie about someone else, do not covet what someone else has, honor your mother and your father. The man says, well, I've kept all of these commandments. And Jesus looks at the man, and as he does so, we're told that Jesus is filled with love for the man. And Jesus then says, I hear what you are saying, but you lack one thing. There is something that you must do. Go sell everything you have and give it all away to the poor. Your wealth will then become heavenly wealth. So go and do that and then come and follow me. And we learn in the story that the man was in fact shocked by Jesus' words and he began to grieve because his wealth was so great. Jesus then says how hard it is for a rich man to enter into God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now as a quick side note, some scholars used to think uh, that Long ago, there was a, a gate, a small gate in the wall surrounding the city of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And the assumption was, because the gate was so small, that a fully loaded camel would not be able to pass through the gate unless it shed all of its stuff. Or the camel was unloaded and went through the gate on its knees. It's a great image, but I'm sorry to say there's no evidence that such a gate ever existed. So we're likely left with the fact that when Jesus was talking about a camel going through the Eye of a Needle, he was using hyperbole. He was exaggerating, as he often did, to make a powerful point. And by using this illustration, Jesus was basically saying, be very careful about your relationship with money. It can mess you up, and it can mess up your relationship with me. Now, I've known this story for a long, 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 long time, and it's never made me feel very comfortable. It always causes me to pause and to take stock of where I am with regard to how I look at money. And while I'm not sure of how to define rich, and it depends upon whom you ask, how many of us here today, in comparison to the population of the world, are doing at least okay, if not much, much more so? That said, it's evident in the story we heard that it's about a fellow who has a ton of wealth, far more than just the basics. And as we think about the story, it's important to point out that issues of money and wealth are all over Scripture. In fact, there are over 2,300 verses in Scripture about money. Roughly 15% of the Bible deals with money. That's in comparison to 500 verses about prayer and a minuscule number of verses, a minuscule number of verses about issues that have divided churches all over the world. It's amazing. 
So clearly by its prevalence alone, money and assets are vital for us to think about. Many of the verses regarding money make a connection between our faith journey and our attitudes and actions concerning money. Money and possessions are spiritual issues and very much related to how we live in our relationship with God. So on a very simple level, the story is about money. It's about a man who was so attached to his money that his faith life was impeded. It's about a person who may have loved money so much that he felt secure by it. And the man's wealth diminishes love and devotion to God. You could even say that the story is about priorities in life. That it's an invitation for each of us to take a look at our own priorities and how they relate to our relationship with each other and God. Well, that's all very well and good. But I had a bit of an aha as I thought about this story. I think that there may just be something else going on in this story that is not apparent at first. Notice that the guy in the story says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And as I thought about that phrase, I I began thinking about the man. Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And I began thinking about the man, and I tried to put myself in his shoes. And I began to wonder and think about, I wonder if the man thinks about his relationship with Jesus in that way that his relationship might be characterized by asking Jesus what he must do. And I began to wonder if the man's relationship with God was that way in general. I wondered if if he thought, if I want to get eternal life, I have to do something. If I want to be in God's good graces, I have to do enough of these good things and not enough of the bad things. I wonder if the man thought, if I'm going to have faith, I have to do something to get it. I wonder if his journey with God was like his work, something to achieve. I wonder if he thought, the more I work at faith, the more I'll get from it. I wonder if the man viewed his faith life and his relationship with God as something to accomplish. And then I thought about the man, and I thought about my own relationship with God, in which I thought that my faith and my walk with Jesus is about what I must do. And then it hit me that in the story that when the man asked Jesus what he must do, Jesus is described as having great love for the man. I think his heart, Jesus' heart was filled with compassion for the man. So I wonder if Jesus told a man to sell all of his goods because he wanted the man to understand something. That something? I wonder if Jesus wanted to convey to the man that our faith life is not about getting anything. That instead it's all about receiving. So I wonder in this story if Jesus was trying to lead the man to an aha moment in which the man would realize that all of our lives with God at its core is about receiving, not earning, not getting, not doing, not accomplishing, but receiving. 
And I wonder if Jesus wanted the man and for us to realize that the question is not about how to get more faith, but rather how to receive more faith from God. I wonder if Jesus wants us to understand that the question is not about how to become a more prayerful person, but rather how to receive a more prayerful nature from God. I wonder if Jesus wants us to stop trying so hard to be like Him, but rather to spend our time focusing on receiving His Spirit which is already within us, which in fact will end up making us more like Him. I wonder if Jesus, through this story, wants us to think about instead of how do I get more of God's love in my life, the question is how do I receive more of the love of God? Not how do I get more forgiveness, how do I receive the forgiveness that's already there? Not how to earn God's favor, but how to receive the favor that's been given to me through God's grace. The story has reminded me in a very powerful way that our walk with Jesus is all about receiving and not getting, and then spending our lives in response to all that we have received. I'd like for each of us to ponder and think about the difference between getting something and receiving it. The difference is massive. I believe that our lives and our relationship with Jesus will be fundamentally different if we view our relationship as something to receive from Christ and then going out and responding to it versus spending our lives trying to get something from God. You see, when getting is our goal, when I ask God what I, what I need to do, I leave myself in charge. When we embrace receiving is the way, we allow God to be in charge. I want to close this morning with an image from Scripture. It's a pretty powerful image, and in some ways I think it's very much related to our gospel reading today. It's from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. <clears throat> Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, God says the following. God says, I am a living fountain. Come to me as a living fountain. And then God says, but instead of coming to me as a living fountain... You go about building cisterns for yourself. Think about that story for a minute in the context of the story in Math and Mark. God says, I'm a living fountain. Come to me as a living fountain. Receive the waters from my mountain, my fountain. Instead of going about spending your lives building cisterns, trying to get something done. And clearly, as many of you know, a cistern long ago was something that people built and created with their hands. They would dig in hard rock or hard soil. They were used to store water. And when you build a cistern, it's something that you do by your own effort. And God's saying, stop building cisterns to store water by your own effort. Instead, start receiving from me like a fountain, not from the cisterns you build. This is all about the difference between receiving and getting. I love the image of a fountain. 
It's scriptural, and people for centuries have used the image of a fountain to describe this very notion of receiving from God rather than getting something. The great John Calvin in the 1500s even wrote about God as a fountain. And in writing about John Calvin, here's what somebody writes. Calvin imagined God as a fountain of goodness. God who is good does not keep his goodness to himself. Rather, God sends his goodness and love out all over creation like the waters that spill from a fountain. God invites each of us to receive the waters from his fountain. That's an image that goes back to the 1500s. It goes right back to Jeremiah. I think the story today is really an invitation for each of us to think about the massive difference between building our own cisterns in our relationship with God and then allowing ourselves to be in God's fountain, receiving, releasing, letting go. Where are we in our journey in faith this morning? Where are we as we think about the difference between relating to God as something to do versus something to receive? And I pray this morning that in some way, God will lead each of us to a bit of an aha to help us recognize what it is that we each need to receive most from Christ today. What do we need to receive most from Christ today? What do we need to receive most from Christ today? Is it strength? Is it healing? Is it reconciliation? Is it forgiveness? Is it letting go of something that's been part of your life for a long time? What is it that you need to receive from Christ the most today? Not what do you need to do to get it, but what do you need to receive? And I pray that Christ will lead us to that realization, each of us this morning, that we'll be very clear on what we need to receive, that we'll know that we've received it, and that we'll spend the rest of our days acting upon what he's given us through his grace. So let us pray.